point out that because of a snafu that I had with technology, apparently I'm getting behind as I'm going, growing older. And so uh, I could not get the slideshow to work this morning. I tried to do it a different way, and it didn't work. So I will have pictures, but most of my outline is printed out and on this fancy little stand here. So I'm taking two steps back from having everything on my screen. Um, but that said, we are in the book of Revelation. So Father, we come to you this morning. We're going to study your word, but without your spirit, we can't understand what the spirit is saying to the church. And so Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to fill us and overflow. We need your voice to speak to us the things that particularly are for us as individuals and us as a church. So we come to you by faith this morning asking, Lord, would you please teach us? We are willing to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, and as I go through a little bit of puberty with my voice, um, we're going to start by reviewing what we've already looked at. Revelation chapter 1, verse 19 um, says, uh, John, Apostle John, I want you to write down the things which you have seen, the things which are currently, and the things which will take place after this. We believe this to be the outline for the book of Revelation. Uh, the things that are happening now is where we're f finding ourselves today, uh, chapter 2 through 3. So um, as we look at the things that are happening now, we've studied and looked at the church in Ephesus, the church in Smyrna, and today we find ourselves um, as Jesus is speaking to the church in Pergamos. So I have here for you a map right here, of where he starts. So John is on the island of Patmos. He's in exile, and the Spirit of the Lord comes to him, and Jesus Christ particularly comes to him and gives him something to speak into each one of these seven churches. Now, if you look with me, you can see Ephesus, and then if you go north to Smyrna, where we were last week, and you go even further north to Pergamum, it's kind of just a very practical route that he's taking. It's a, a letter route, if you will. And so we're going to continue on. We're in the third church of the seven. But as we're in Pergamum, I'm going to kind of give you the backdrop for this letter and where it's being written to. Pergamum, uh, Pergamos is approximately 100 miles north of Ephesus and about 15 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. And so it's approximately 100,000 in population that was in John's day. Now, there's no harbor, not unlike Ephesus and Smyrna, which were within 15 miles of a harbor. And at the same time, it's a very wealthy place, a huge center for academia. It was a first century Roman author who said, uh, this is the most distinguished city in all of Asia. So it, it's set apart from all the other cities of Asia. So I find that interesting because this is a city that is well known for its academia. And many times, if a place has a place of higher learning, we kind of look to it as a, a large city and it swells and it shrinks based on when semesters have started and stopped. I, in particular, went to maybe not a most distinguished city, but I went to a city by the name of Rolla, Missouri. And in that city, it would swell three to 5,000 people during the semester, and then it would shrink back down during the summers. 
I stayed there one summer and it was kind of depressing compared to the time during the school year. But Pergamum was able to flourish because it was the home to a library in its day of about 200,000 volumes. Now you might say, big deal. But in this day, there was no printing press. There was no Gutenberg printing press. These were all handwritten volumes, handwritten books. So if you wanted a copy, someone would have to sit this book down and they would have to sit down a blank book and start scribbling down the words. So there was 200,000 of these volumes. So in that day, it was completely unheard of. It was second only to the library that was in Alexandria, Egypt. And so um, this is the place where this church exists, in this place of higher learning. So I find it interesting because the word pergamos comes from two Greek words, pergos and gamos. So pergos means tower or high elevation, and gamos means married. So if you're married today, you're gamos. You're married to your spouse. But pergos and gamos put together, the name matches its status. And I would submit to you what it means is married to the world and elevated in the world's eyes. So think about this. Higher learning is literally called higher learning. It's elevate, it elevates you in status in the world's eyes if you're educated. And yet, highly educated in the ways of the world is actually something as Christians we're called to not be. He actually says in Romans chapter 12 that you're not to be conformed to the ways of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So all the ways that the world has educated you, that this is the way to live, God calls us to be uneducated, to be excellent in the things that are good, Romans 16 says, but to be innocent or uneducated or maybe even ignorant in the ways of the world. Romans 16, 19 says, be excellent in what is good and be innocent in what is evil. And so this city is a place of higher learning, and I would submit to you that many times places of higher learning, even the ones that start as religious places of higher learning, think about Ivy League schools, they started actually Harvard or Yale and some of these other educational centers were started as religious places of learning. And yet over time, as we become pumped up in pride and education. It becomes about how we can show the world how great we are rather than how great God is. And so we have to be careful as we become learners that we don't become puffed up by knowledge, as Paul would write to the Corinthians. So this city, because of its place of higher learning, would draw in and retain lots of learned men from around the world. I actually had a picture for you of what the library actually used to look like. And this was, you know, obviously, not only is it an educational place that is called a place of higher learning, but you would literally have to go up step after step after step with all these columns to a place that highly resembles a place, a temple, if you will. So this place looked like some of the temples to the pagan gods. And so don't we sometimes make a god out of learning 
And education can be very helpful in us getting to know God. I want that everyone should actually be able to read at a young age so that they can read scripture. Because if you learn how to read and you never read about being educated. And so with that being said, we talked about the landscape of the culture. Let's talk about it spiritually speaking. One up. I need the one with the, the little symbols on it. I think my battery needs replaced. So speaking, um, it was also a medical center. Now you might say to me, what does spiritually have to do with medicine? What does it have to do with a hospital? Well, if you look at it, there we go. It's the one with the medical insignia. If you look at a medical center, uh, based, sorry, There we go. Thank you. All right. So as a medical center in those days, they actually had, um, it was based upon the Greek god of healing by the name of Asclepia. And he, one of his temples was located specifically in Pergamos. Now, the original Hippocratic oath actually invoked the name of Apollo, Asclepius, and other gods as a part of its beginning. So in the temple... After offerings were made, patients would spend the night in the holy place in the temple of Asclepius, where snakes would slither all over them to remove illness and heal them, and any visions that they had, the patient, would be told to the priest for how they would come up with a diagnosis for the patient. Now, we kind of laugh at this, right? Uh, that snakes would crawl all over. But we live in a country where we used to use bloodletting. And some of the things where you drill holes in people's head and you'd let them bleed out in order to remove the disease from the blood. But in this case, these snakes believed to have healing powers. So when they'd slither all over the patient, they, removed, they believed that that would remove the illness from them through absorption. And then they would be able to walk out of the temple and they'd be set free from the illness. I think this is interesting for many different reasons, not just because of the obvious. You don't want me near a snake because I'm going to kill it. Yeah, a good snake is a dead snake, right? So um, Pergamos had this mythological god by the name of Asclepius, and, and I believe that this god, and we have a statue of him here. We sing, you're not a god created by human hands. We have this sculpture of this god believed to have been giving healing powers, and yet he's got a staff with one, and some of the images they make have two snakes. Now, if you look with me in the center of the slide, you have our medical insignia. Now, I would also submit to you that this is a perversion of what God originally intended for this image of a pole with a snake on it. If you'll turn with me to Numbers chapter 21. In Numbers chapter 21, they have been wandering through the wilderness. Everyone knows the story, perhaps you don't, of God delivering his people from the nation of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea, they enter into this desert place, and as they arrive there, they are uh, tried. 
And what I mean by that is God had this 11-day journey for them to cross this wilderness and cross the Jordan and enter into the land of Canaan. And yet, because of unbelief, they balked and said, I don't know, there's giants there. God's delivered us from Egypt through this huge Red Sea, parted the waters. We walked through as if on dry land, and yet we, I don't know if he can deliver us from these giants. And we all struggle with that, right? Because each step of faith requires more faith. And so as they don't enter into the land, they start wandering through this wilderness in the desert. And God, who is gracious and merciful, provides manna for them from heaven every day. And he actually makes it so that after 40 years, an 11-day journey took 40 years And yet it says when they walk out of the land that their clothing and their shoes did not wear out. Now, we've advanced, right? Our clothing still doesn't last more than sometimes 11 wearings. It wears out. It it gets worn out. Our shoes especially. Give shoes to a teenage boy. What happens? Moments later, they gone. They broke. They're scuffed. They're messed up. They they stinketh. And so we, we have these problems with clothing and yet... God, in their disobedience, made it so that their clothing didn't even wear out. And he fed them daily. And he had this interaction with them. But there was a time, believe it or not, they're on this spiritual road trip that was very real. And somewhat into the 40 years, they start to complain against God. And this happened over and over yet. Over and over again. And they would say, essentially, are we there yet? Are we ever going to arrive? Did you just bring us out into the desert to let us wander and die? And yet it was their unbelief that had them wandering. So while they're complaining, their occupation becomes burying. Every time they complain against God, somebody dies because of this breach of trust in God. And when we do not trust God, there is always death involved. And so as they're not trusting God, finally they complain enough that God allows fiery serpents to come upon them. And in Numbers chapter 21, it says in verse 4, they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became discouraged on the way. And this people started to speak against God and against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and our soul lulls this worthless bread. They called manna, this miraculous bread that God provided, worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at this fiery serpent shall live so moses made a bronze serpent put it on a pole and so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone when he looked at the bronze serpent he lived and so this being a type of jesus christ because we have been bitten by the serpent called sin Sin affects each one of us, sometimes physically, sometimes all the time spiritually. 
And sin is like the venom of a fiery serpent. And it will kill you eventually or sometimes more quickly. And so all who have been bitten by this fiery serpent can look to the serpent that's been raised up on the pole, being a type of Christ, and be healed. Not die for our transgression, but instead be healed. Interesting, because if you turn to the New Testament book of John in chapter 3, Jesus tells us the meaning behind the passage in Numbers. So in John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, who is an Old Testament scholar. And as he speaks, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever looks to him or believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So I take that detour to point out that I believe that this mythological God is basically Satan taking something that God means to point to Jesus, to point it to some other God, to get us to worship something else. And in some cases, to worship even the good thing that God's given us in medicinal healing. And so we still today even though you could say that this serpent on a pole could point to the Numbers 21 story, if we're not careful, it starts to point to us believing in medicine rather than in the healer himself. And so uh, I point out that all that out to say that Jesus is going to reveal himself to this group of people. So as we begin, finally, the longest introduction, part three, we look at verse 12. Jesus says to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Jesus reveals something about himself to these Christ followers in the church in Pergamum. He says these things, he who has the sharp two-edged sword. So he's revealed himself in a specific way to Ephesus, and then to Smyrna. And now here in Pergamum, he says, I'm the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. He's telling them this because he wants to cut, he wants to make a division because they are married to the world. And Jesus is getting ready to say to them, your marriage to the world is, is sinful. You need to be cut away from the world, set apart for God's use. And because this marriage that you've made with your culture, you're becoming more like them instead of you having an impact on the city you live in. So he says, you need to be cut away. So I want to point out that the word for sword that's in Revelation chapter 2 here is not the sharp two-edged sword spoken of in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 where he says, um, He says, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing between what is soulful and what is spiritual, the flesh and the spirit. He says, 
In this case, this is not like a short two-edged sword, which we would use. It would be like, the, I say we would use. How many of you have swords at your house? But it's for hand-to-hand combat. It was what, it was what a, a uh, who would use it? Um, I had it in my notes. It's the sword that a, an assassin would use. It would be used very delicately to off somebody, if you will. Versus what he's saying here in Revelation chapter 2, the sword he's speaking of, the word in the Greek actually means a cutlass or a a long sword, a broad sword. It's a sword that you would run into battle against your enemy and you'd knock down five, six guys at one time. And I say all that because we've been playing Wii, that little like game with the swords and you go in and you start waylaying people. By the way, I'm horrible at it. Judah is three years old and he destroys my score. Like I go in there and I'm like swinging it and I'm like being strategic. Judah fights with it like it's just a broadsword. He goes in and he goes like this. And as he goes like this, he knocks and he gets way past my score. I'm not bitter about it. But what you would do in battle is you would take this broadsword and you would just knock down your enemy. You'd get them all. One swipe. You wouldn't do all this kind of thing. You wouldn't go Princess Bride and, and start fighting like this. You would, you would actually just go waylay them. Carnage. Jesus says, I have the broadsword and I'm ready to do judgment. But he says, I don't want you to be judged with the world. I would rather use my sharp two-edged sword, my short sword, to do battle against what's going on in your heart, what's going on in your church. And the problem is, is that some among you have married themselves to the world and they're impacting the way you think about Jesus and his church. And so I want to use my sharp two-edged sword, my short sword to deal with the sin. I want to cut it out of you like you would cut out cancer. I don't want to waylay you and judge you with the world. And so with that being said, he goes on and, and I want to turn real quick to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Because in there, um, the Apostle Paul writes something to the Corinthian church that's very similar. In chapter 6, verse 14. The Apostle Paul says this, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with ungodliness or lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them, I will walk among them, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, he says, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters, says the Almighty. So he says, what fellowship has the people of God with the temple of idols? And I would submit to you that this is exactly what Jesus is trying to say to the church of Pergamum. You're calling yourselves the church. You're in the church. But there are those among you that are in the church, and yet they're coming in to compromise your faith and to have you put faith in this this Asclepius, or your faith in this temple of knowledge, this library of information. 
But the problem is, is that you trust in your own understanding. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, he says, Trust not in your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge me, God, and I will direct your path. But then if you go into this passage in 2 Corinthians, he's saying, You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. What fellowship have you with the temple of Asclepius? Why are you going there? And some of them were. So he says, be called out, be different. So as we move on, he says, verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell and where you dwell where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which a man by the name of Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So I've kind of gotten ahead of myself a little bit, but I, I want to talk about how Jesus knows. He says, I know your works. I know where you dwell. And their works are tied into where they dwell. Now, is he talking about his, their physical location where they live? Or is he talking about where they dwell in their minds? And I would submit to you, yes. He's talking about, I know where your thoughts dwell but I also know where you physically dwell, and I also know where you spiritually go when no one's looking. He says, I want you to be aware of the fact that I know your works. I know what you're doing. I know where you are. Where you dwell affects how you live. Where you dwell affects how you live. Yar who your friends are. That's quoting Al Mingi, my dad. He would always say, And he still says, you are who your friends are. And I believe that to be absolutely true. You become like what you soak yourselves in. And so he says, come be a part, be set apart, be set apart to me. He says, I know where you dwell. Specifically, he says, you dwell at the place of Satan's throne. So he's calling this place of higher learning. He's calling this place that is married to the world a place of influence, Now, thrones have physical locations, right? We don't battle against flesh and blood as believers, but against principalities and powers of the darkness of this world. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it actually says that Satan is the god of this world, that he is the ruler of the world that we live in. Jesus has not set up his throne yet. But at the same time, I believe there are specific places that Satan decides he's going to use that are influential, just like we do. When, when we began thinking about a place to plant a church, it was because of a family that we knew, but it was also because we were praying that God would plant a church in each of the counties around us in the county seat, the place where that courthouses. Why? Because that's a place that's influential. And if Satan's going to be influential, we need to be influential. We need to strategize. And at the same time, we need to trust the leading of the Holy Spirit. But my point is, is that Satan has particular places that he will use to exercise his influence and prepare the future generations in order to live in the ways of the world and to be married to the things of the world. And I would submit to you that a very huge place in our culture is places of higher learning. As a believer, young people, as Christians, where you go to college will have influence on you that you don't even know about. 
So you have to be armed for that. I was, had a fledgling walk with Jesus before I left. I had never repented of my sins and become a believer. I hadn't decided I was sitting on the fence. But when I went off to college, college had all the influence they wanted. And let me submit to you that if you don't believe this is true, then why are Greek fraternities still allowed to be on campus and to be sponsored by campus funding? You can tell me all you want when I walk in with my parents. This is how it happened. I went to the University of Missouri Rawa, and I was interested in the fraternities. We walked in. They had it all cleaned up. It still smelled, smelled like stale beer, by the way. Oh, yeah, we work on our homework together in this room. No, you don't. No, they don't. They expect you to have good grades, but it is like killing your brain cell city. I lived it. I, I lived it. But even above that, say, you know, they're not going to influence me. We're not going to go do that. My kids won't go do that. If that's the case, praise the Lord for that, because that takes faith. It takes a lack of the fear of man. But you enter those classroom doors, you are paying them many times to teach you things that you are against, that you don't believe. Now, I'm not saying that you don't go get an education because a lot of the colleges where you're going to go, they're still going to teach you those things because you need those skills, but you need to recognize that they are influencing you with things of the world, things that Satan wants you to believe. So you have to go in armed with the education and the knowledge of the grace and the mercy of God. Knowing God personally completely flips that on its head. Because then with you are filled with the Spirit of God, you walk into those educational facilities, you're going, to, you're going to spew out the junk. But it takes a daily walk with Him. And it is like spending all of your time in the world. We, even as believers, not going off to college. We need to daily get to know our God and arm ourselves with the truth so that we combat the lies of the enemy. We are being influenced the TV shows that you watch are influenced by Satan. Satan literally puts things in there for us to be slowly kind of transformed the way we think. And if you don't believe that, then look at what's put in TV programs just kind of as background stuff. You know, uh, the, the agendas that are there, hopefully your eyes are open to them. And you go, wow, that's not necessary. Why was that even in the plot? Because they, they want to influence you. And so all of that to say, I'll get off on my high horse, you know, but it, it's going on. Satan wants to deceive. He wants to kill. He wants to destroy. He wants to erode your faith and make you doubt God. Look at the garden. Just look at the garden. Adam and Eve are there. Satan didn't come in as, as like a big horned animal. He, he came in and he said, hey, does God really have your best interest in mind? Does he really love you? Isn't he withholding from you knowledge that would help you become successful? That's what he does. He makes us doubt God. And so we need to know God. All that to say, verse 13, he says, I know your works. I know where you dwell. I know where Satan's throne is. And yet you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which this man that they all knew at the time, Antipas, was faith, he was a faithful martyr. He was killed where Satan dwells. But he says to this church, I have a few things against you. Now, Antipas, just for historical sake, he was known by those in Pergamos, and it is said that the emperor at the time, Domitian, 
he roasted Antipas to death inside of a brass bowl, which was a local idol. He was worshiping in the temple, and he actually took Antipas, who was teaching others not to worship idols, and he burned him to death. And so um, it is said by church history that while he was being burned to death, he was actually praying uh, not only for the church, but also uh, for those that were burning him to death. And all that said, um, he says in verse 14, I have a few things against you. Now, if they've been holding fast to the faith, even though it was a hard place to live as a Christian, why would he have things against them? He says, I have some things against you. You have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So he says, the thing I have against you is that there are those among your ranks that need to be put out of the church. They have, they're teach, they have this doctrine that they hold to. And the doctrine that they were holding to was the doctrine of Balaam. Now, we don't have time this morning to go through the entire Numbers chapter 22 through 25. But in this passage, there was a prophet who had this link to God where God would reveal things to him, and yet he used this communication he had with God in order to make money. And so as he was making money as a prophet for hire, if you will, he had a love for money, he actually had this friend that contacted him, the king of Moab, one of Israel's enemies. And he hired Balaam to curse the people of Israel. And so Balaam would go and he would say, okay, I'll curse them. And he'd sacrifice animals and do all these pagan idolatry things. And then he would prophesy. And he would try to prophesy a blessing, or excuse me, a curse over the nation of Israel because that's how he would get paid. And yet God would not let him. He would not be able to speak curses over Israel. And as a matter of fact, all four times that he goes to curse Israel, God forces him somehow to bless Israel. And you can imagine the guy that hired him kind of got mad. I keep paying you money to curse them and you keep blessing them. What are you doing? Don't you know that I can give you all this money that I've offered you? And yet Balaam was like, I can only utter what God lets me. So it's really hard to understand for me. And yet what we find is that though he tried to curse them four times and was not able, Balaam really loved him some cash. He really loved him some gold. He wanted all the stuff that the world had to offer. He, was, he had a direct line to God, and yet he was married to the world. He was on the fence. Let me submit to you, if you're on the fence... Then, then you're going to be on the fence and you're going to end up serving the world every time because it feels better. It doesn't feel good all the time to serve God. And so what happened is that he tried four times, he wasn't able, but since he loved financial gain, he kind of had some insight on the nation of Israel. So he informed Balak, hey, I can't curse them, but one way you can really take care of them and, and defeat them is you can actually get them to sin, and then God will have to curse them. God will have to judge them if they get into sin. So um, why don't you take your beautiful young Moabite women and encamp kind of close to them? Because though they're set apart and they're holy, 
Um, they're still tempted by the flesh, and they really like them some forbidden fruit. They really like them some Moabite women. And so they did. The king of Moab said, no problem. Put his young Moabite women close to their camp, and guess what happened? The Israelites gave in to temptation, and uh, God judged them. So the Israelites fell headlong into their trap. There are folks within the church that have a direct line to God, and yet they're married to the world, and they're compromising, and they will teach you, and they will teach your children, they will teach people within the body of Christ that compromise is okay because God gives us grace. But I would submit to you that they are in league with Satan, whether they know it or not, and they will be a hitch in our giddy-up. And so there are many times that God calls us to call it what it is, and to send them out of the church until they repent of that teaching, of that doctrine, of that way of life. But then he also goes on to say, you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now remember with me in in Ephesians, we talked about how the Ephesian church hated the works of the Nicolaitans and how the word means to conquer the people, to conquer the laity. These are leaders within the body who really only are out for personal gain. They're trapped by Satan's carrot. They really love the things of the world. And so they're not looking out for God's sheep. They're only looking out for what they can gain from serving God's sheep. So he says, uh, these people are within your ranks. So the one thing that Jesus has against this Pergamum church is that they're not calling things what they are. For some people, they are not in this camp. They need grace to grow. They've been in the world for however long, and they come in, and they're bruised, and they're beaten, they're repentant, and they just need lots of grace and love. But there are some who come in, and they are wolves in sheep's clothing. They will devour, they will destroy, they will cause division. And what God teaches us in his word is that they need to be called what they are. They need to be called to repentance. And so we as the church are guilty if we allow these folks to remain. We are guilty. It's our fault. We're supposed to be able to discern between good and evil. And so as believers, we all need to be aware of how these things can harm the church. And so he says in verse 16 to them, concerning this condition, he says, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And that's that broad sword. He says, repent or you will be judged. Now, what does repent mean? I think it's important because it's a churchy word. We need to define it. Repent means a change of heart that leads to a change of action. It's not just God knows my heart. He knows I've repented. It's God does know my heart. And if my heart has truly changed, the way I live and the way I speak should change also. That's the fruit of my heart. Compromise is what we're talking about here. They were compromised. It leads to full-on corruption. They weren't corrupted yet. They were compromised. Satan couldn't defeat them from the outside, so he joined the church. And so what he says is get rid of the compromise. They were harboring error, but they hadn't yet adopted it. And so this is a place where it's not too late. So he warns them, remove the compromise or I will judge you swiftly with the broadsword. So how do we remove compromise? What can change our heart? And I would submit to you that it's actually the word of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 in verse 3. 
2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, it's not a physical sword Jesus is going to use, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. It's fitting for today, we've been talking about the high things. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So how do we remove compromise? We arm ourselves with the word of God. Interesting because if you turn with me to Psalm chapter 119, and I believe it's in verse 9. Psalm chapter 119. In verse 9, the psalmist writes, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed or listening, being counseled by the word of God. He says, With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your ways. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the ways of your testimonies. As much as in all riches, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. So I wrote down, and it would have been great if it was on the slide, but I wrote down from that passage the way that we can cleanse our way, the way that we can remove compromise, even in our wicked hearts that we cannot know. The heart is deceitfully wicked. We cannot discern our own hearts, but the word of God, if we will take heed to it, if we will hide his word in our hearts, if we will rejoice in God's word, if we will meditate upon it, if we will take delight in it, if we will memorize it, and if we will take the living word of God, it will actually help us to overcome compromise. It will sweep the house clean. It will mop the floors. It will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so in the church, he says, I want you to use my word as the way to battle against these weapons of the enemy. But as individuals, we need to be willing to do that too. So verse 17, back in Revelation 2, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except he who receives it. So he says, to him who overcomes, I will give him of the hidden manna. Now hidden manna is food that you do not know about. And I have all these notes here, but since it's about a time, look at the hidden manna in the new, excuse me, in the book of Numbers. He, he gave them the hidden manna. Now, they received the manna in the wilderness, right? But then God told them, I want you to take one jar of manna and I want you to put it under the mercy seat inside of the ark. This is the hidden manna. 
And so when you would approach into the temple, there would be a veil, only the priest could go in. And then as we enter into the Holy of Holies, only the priest could go there, there'd be the mercy seat that was covering the manna. Because we'd come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, who is our mercy seat. He is our atonement. His blood spread on the top of that mercy seat gives us the ability to go into and see the hidden manna. Hidden manna can only be given to those who come to God by faith in Jesus Christ. So he says, the things that I want to teach you, there's surface level stuff, but then there's also hidden manna that can only be gained if we dig for it. It can be only gained if we seek it, if we find it, if we're looking for it. And so in John chapter 6, verse 31, as they have just taken uh, one of the feasts, Then in verse 31, the people say to Jesus, Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. And all the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should not, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the manna, this hidden manna, he says, he who overcomes, I will give the hidden manna. What is the hidden manna? That's Jesus. He's going to reveal this bread of life to us daily as we partake of it, as we seek, as we ask, as we knock. He's going to give, him, he's going to give us more of himself, more of Jesus. I don't know about you guys, but I struggled yesterday. We had a birthday party, and there was this box of donuts because Blake wanted donuts, and so we had donuts. I couldn't just eat one. Yeah, I wanted more. But would it to be, if we could, like donuts, maybe Krispy Kremes is your flavor. Maybe your favorite isn't a donut, it's something else. Would it to be that as we long for more of him, and as we need him for what his word does to us, that we would get the, the true reward, which is more Jesus, more manna. May we so have a flavor and taste and see that the Lord is good, that he cleanses us of unrighteousness, and that he continues his work by the Spirit. But may that come out of an abundance of him just continuing to give us more of the hidden manna. And so um, there's more about the white stone, but I'll touch on it next week. The white stone was this, this allegory and this story from the day that John's learning this. And they, they, they would write their names. If you were like blood brothers, 
You know, you'd write your name on each end of the stone and you'd break it in half. And then you'd give the other end of the stone to your buddy. And then only he would know what the name meant because he was buddies with you. And yet in John chapter 14, verse 19 through 21, I said I was going to give it next week, but I'm going to finish it. John chapter 14, verse 19 through 21. I believe this is what Jesus was saying to them. Verse 19, Jesus said to his disciples, and this is what he's saying to you and I, a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. So that name that's written on the stone reminds us that not only do we know God, but that he knows us. And so I hope that's encouragement to you today. So to this compromising church, he doesn't say it's too late. He says, let me cut out the compromise. How is he going to cut out the compromise? We're going to heed, take heed to his spirit. We're going to let him humble us. We're going to let him point out to us the things that need removed. And then because he says, he who has an ear, anybody else in here not missing their ears? Let him hear. You have an ear to hear. Let him hear what the spirit says to the church. So I hope that ministers to you this morning. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you that as you have saved us and as you are saving us, that you remove the things that are harmful to us, but also then you fill us with the things that are good for us. You remove the cancer and you instill in us the bread of life. And because you live, we will live also. Because you are the sustainer of life, we will be sustained also. Father, will you please continue to cleanse us as your church Make us holy, make us other, make us set apart, and we will do our part to meditate and dwell in your word and let you correct us. Father, if there's anybody in here today that is like the people I was talking about that are on the fence about whether or not they're going to wholly give their life to you, Lord, would it be the educational or the the higher learning that they just can't get past. They feel like they got to check their brain to be a person of faith. I pray that you'd remove that barrier like you did for me. Maybe it's somebody that has been afraid to trust you for healing, to trust you as the healer. Father, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them and show them that, that you are the author and the finisher of life, that you heal, that you make whole, and, um, and that you're able to do above and beyond even what medicine can do. And Father, um, in all of our ways, help us to acknowledge you and let you make our path straight. Set us aright, Lord. Correct us like a good father. Find the things that need to be changed and change them. And we promise, Lord, make us willing. Help us to be willing. We will be willing by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.